Welcome to the Political Economy Podcast. I'm your host, Jim Pethokoukas of the American Enterprise Institute. Each week, I feature a lively conversation with experts on some of the most important economic and policy questions of our time. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider rating and reviewing it on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Stitcher. Ratings and reviews really help with the podcast visibility, and I always appreciate the feedback. Thanks, and on to the show. New discoveries, inventions, and innovations, ideas are at the heart of scientific progress and economic growth. But that means a growing economy depends on an accelerating production of new ideas. In this week's episode of Political Economy, I'm joined by Didier Sornet to talk about where these ideas come from, why they seem to have been in decline, and what we can do to foster greater scientific knowledge and a growing economy. Professor Sornet is Chair of Entrepreneurial Risks in the Department of Management, Technology, and Economics at ETH Zurich. In 2020, he and Peter Caldwell's authored Our Flows of Ideas in Research Productivity and Secular Decline. Didier, welcome to the podcast. Good morning. I'd like to begin by reading a quote from the paper. Scientific knowledge has been in clear secular decline since the early 1970s for the flow of ideas and since the early 1950s for research productivity. Can you walk us through the main results of your study? And you can start by explaining what do you mean by flow of ideas? Yes, so uh, of course, this is a fundamental question uh, because um, you know, this is about the engine of how we make progress, we add wealth to society, right? And in economics, everything is linked with productivity growth, productivity, which is the ability for us by working not more, but to produce more, more efficiently by better tools and so on. And of course it is powered by uh, three key concepts, discoveries, inventions, and innovations, right? This is the core of the paper to distinguish between the three. So there's a confusion, I think, in the literature and also in the discussion in Silicon Valley, everywhere where we uh, are so happy to show the development of so many new apps or new developments and so on. But they are much more concerned with innovations. And it is very important to distinguish the innovation from invention and discovery. By the way, we are not the inventor of this distinction. It has a long history in the field too. And it's very important. So discoveries is very clear what it means. You discover a new planet, you discover the new world, right? The case of Columbus, you discover new laws of physics, you discover new material. This is about really uh, exploring and discovering something really new, a law of nature, a new territory and so on. Invention is about uh, putting together, let's say, discoveries, new laws and so on, in order to create something that did not exist. You invent a new machine, you invent a new concept, you invent something new. And innovations, for example, the a good example of innovation might be the iPhone, for example, when it came out in 2008, which is there's no discovery, there's no invention, it's just putting together existing invention, existing modules, maybe hundreds of them, in a new way that all together adds functionalities and serve a service, right? Now that we have distinguished the three, uh, the main conclusion of our study showed that while you could argue that innovation is still solid, going on very strongly, at the level of discoveries and at the level of invention, there is a slowing down. We discovered less and less new laws of physics, of nature, of biology, and so on. There's really a clear slow, a slowing down. And in terms of invention and really inventing 
for example, new batteries, new chemical processes, new um, modes of propulsion, new engines, new etc. It's not going well. Now, having all these discoveries, invention, configuring them in a new way, there's still some progress, and this is where let's say the deceleration is the smallest. But this is our diagnostic that in the level of discoveries and invention, we have a clear deceleration or even actually slowing down in the last 20 to 50 years. The flow idea is a lay layman's way of representing the discoveries and the invention. In particular, we're talking about research productivity. Are scientific researchers becoming less productive than they used to be back in the middle of the 20th century? So, you know, uh, this is interesting because of course, colleagues uh, come to an opposite conclusion than ours, uh, because it depends always what you measure, right? What is the, the metric that you're using? You see an inflation and exponential growth of scientific papers. So in that, by that metric, you'd say, things have never been better. There are enormous number of researchers, the number of absolute number of researchers uh, and engineers has never been larger. And even in proportion to the population, the fraction is also extremely large, has been booming. But when you look at the content, so that's uh, the content, the substance of these papers, I could summarize in a bit a pejorative way by saying these papers are mostly about well-dressed trivia. Right. It's a bit harsh against my colleagues and myself, maybe as a producer of scientific, but indeed they are incremental. And another, let's say, illustration of this fact is, you know, for example, in many uh, disciplines, in order to have the next increment, you need five, 10 times more researchers. So what we see is the production per dollar spent per researchers have been really decreasing. So it's like exactly Alice in Waterland, right? Just to stay at the same place, you need to run faster and faster and faster. So that's clear. All metrics show this. So that's, I, I think, a way of reconciling, reconciling these, these different perspectives. What is the existing paradigm and what did you find that challenges it? Yes, I, I, I don't think there is a consensus. There are different schools of thoughts and evidence and there's a cyclic nature also, by the way, of uh, economic thinking about this. Um, you know, we often joke that economics is the only science that can forget truth. And, and I have many examples of that, you know, they, you forget. And so there are cycles in the knowledge and the understanding. But indeed, there's these two school of gradualism versus punctuated uh, processes. I'm, I'm clearly on the side of the punctuation of the burst of productivity. Uh, I think it's very difficult to think about, about supporting gradualism. When you look at the history of science and of discoveries, you can see that there have been long plateaus of status quo. And there is, for example, the, the emergence of quantum mechanics uh, or, or relativity. There was, I mean, and all of electricity or, or the transistor. There are breakthrough discoveries and invention that completely change the picture. And then a whole industry, a whole new, even you could say, technological um, generation emerged from it, right? So this is one of the problems, by the way, um, of that economic modeling has to face, which is how to reconcile this punctuation, this birth of productivity that leads to generation changes with 
the management of the process, right? Which is maybe another issue. I don't know if you want to discuss it, but how as a decision maker, as a government, you allocate resources, given the fact that most of the time you're going to fund research you, with, with, let's say, bleeding, you're bleeding money, nothing comes, nothing comes, incremental things, and then suddenly, by chance, a great discovery occurs and feeds the next generation. It seems that forecasting would be very difficult if you're correct. You wouldn't be able to look back 10 years and predict the next 10 years if progress indeed comes in sudden bursts and leaps forward. So you can have always, you know, short-term forecasts, which is like incremental, you know, uh, economists and even uh, you know, many disciplines are quite good at extrapolating a trend short-term. That's not too difficult, but the, it's a short-term. But to predict change regime, non-linearities and this burstiness is of course uh, very difficult. So my advice, and we have written quite many papers in the last decades on this, is I would be a bit provocative. Um, you know, as scientists, we have taught and we are brainwashed. You know, there's a, this quote, which is very important. Let us, let us not waste taxpayer money, right? Because we are really responsible and we are um, happy recipient of the taxpayer money to develop a new discovery and so on. But I would claim we need to waste taxpayer money. What does it mean? Not, of course, to throw it through the window, of course not, but to take risks, to go to very risky endeavor where the probability of success is low. Because if the probability of success is large, it means that it's incremental. There's no uh, unknown. You know, you're already doing a kind of extrapolation of something that you know. But most disruptive technologies, invention and laws and discoveries are things which are not predictable. I mean, or very difficult. You have a vague view. I can tell you, uh, for example, my uh, Nobel Prize winner, Pierre-Gilles de Gênes, I was a postdoc of him. He was named as the new Newton of the Bonin era. Maybe not, not perhaps in US, nobody knows him, but a very famous scientist, extraordinary mind, and I learned a lot from him. And he was famous for a first part of his career uh, as the elite scientist in superconductivity. You know, superconductivity is this material property where you can transport electricity without any resistance. And this is the dream of, let's say, magnetic sustentation for cars, for trains, and for uh, no loss along the high voltage line, right? And he was at the peak of his career, and he was, say, he was saying, there's no new discovery possible in this field. A few years later, the high TC superconductivity revolution came, right? By, by the way, two researchers where I'm located in Zurich, at IBM Zurich, which were made by people, by two researchers who have been working for decades in incremental tinkering of material, not, not your flashy things, going by one by one, changing an atom, looking at different configuration, and was it predictable that something like this would happen? No, not even Nobel Prize winner De Gennes could think about it. And then by serendipity, there was of course a rational a logic of the work of these scientists. They were following a track, but it could have taken another decade or two, or maybe it would have never worked. But this is a very good example of these you know, discoveries that we need and they are, are highly unpredictable. Nevertheless, you need to continue to explore this pass and seemingly lose taxpayer money. That's what Dejean was saying. He said, no, I mean, we should stop funding this type of research. 
Robert Gordon from Northwestern University has been labeled a techno-pessimist because he doesn't see any game-changing innovations that will rapidly accelerate productivity, at least not anytime soon. But it seems like it would be impossible, according to your findings, to forecast a sudden burst in productivity. Yes, we, we need to take risk. I come always uh, back to this point. And I think society is not taking enough risk. And my colleagues, for example, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm sitting in several research commission. Um, we have been working a lot in, you know, allocating funds to grant proposal, all this game, right, that scientists play. And the official statement is, yes, we only fund high risk, high return. We encourage the researcher to take big risks and so on. In practice, this is exactly the opposite. We fund well-dressed trivia, well-presented, where essentially, you know, a criterion to reject a proposal is, mm, we think that there is a low probability that it will succeed. So essentially, we want to already, and it's well known. I mean, as a senior professor, when I advise my student or junior professors, it's very clear that the rule of the game is do the research before, get already the results, put that in a grant, mimic as if it was future things that you will propose the research and show already you know, the, the beginning of the results so that the referees and the, and the decision makers will say, okay, yes, is the priority to succeed 100%. We, have, we are, have this cancer in society where we only fund essentially certain results research, which is of course a recipe for disaster long-term because the success, you know, the first, second, third, and now fourth revolution are based on taking a risk on exploring. And this is the point. We are too much in a society that wants to exploit as opposed, as opposed to explore. This duality is fundamental to understand. What are the deeper factors that turn us into a zero-risk society? Yes, so this term zero-risk society, I, I, uh, when it dawned on me, you know, the, the COVID situation that started in the beginning of the 2020, uh, with my group, we analyzed it, we looked at the sociology, the response and so on, the non-pharmaceutical responses and, and, the, and the pandemic of fear, I would say. It's more, much more a pandemic of fear that has been engineered for, about, for various reasons. We could have a full interview on this if you like. But it dawned on me that actually this was a revelation of this uh, zero risk society. And personally, I would time the beginning of this uh, around 2001, you know, September 11, around this 20 years ago, roughly. And actually, a number of philosophers and uh, thinkers have indeed uh, quoted this uh, in the different words. Um, for example, the, the, the idea of, of the Lehman Brother uh, moment, you know, Lehman moment always, the Minsky moment, all these terms that are part of the common knowledge. Now, every little hiccup on the planet is a Lehman brother moment or is a fantastic degree or a Minsky moment. So we are now kind of brainwashed by hoping that society is stationary, that nothing changes and any hiccup is, is frightening. So where does it come from? That's your question. I think there are several mechanisms. Um, aging, an aging society, which is more wealthy, is very well known in psychology and economics that we take less risk when we age and we are and this is actually the, the big problem, one, one big problem. Another one is um, the role of the media as mercants of attention and also the emergence in the last decade of social media that tends to you know, raise any small events, in my opinion, into worldwide phenomena 
uh, I can we can give many examples of that. So, but we are the society is governed by this fear, and it's well known in biology and neurobiology and psychology that our brain is hardwired to react to fear many times more, more than by happiness or by good news and so on, right? So unfortunately, you know, the business model of media is about selling fear, right? And this is what is attracting attention and unfortunately backfire in, in developing this zero risk society. I think another mechanism is also what I would call the illusion of control. Technology, the scientific view that we are mastering the force of the planet, giving, we can master everything. We can master the COVID, we can master our health, we can master uh, any things in nature, which of course is partly true. And we see the backfire coming, for example, when we want to master fires in California, uh, you have had these enormous fires. This is a very good example of an illusion of control. By controlling all the most small fires, you let the wood accumulate, the dead wood accumulate. And when there is a right condition of an Anna, so it's called Saint, uh, Anna wind coming from the, from the desert with this enormous fuel as accumulated, no manpower can stop this conflagration. Uh, by the way, in Baja California, uh, in Mexico, you have exactly the same vegetation, chaparral, the same environment and so on. There's no such big fire. Why? Because the Mexicans let the fire go. Not because they are more clever than the Americans, or the you guys, but simply because they don't have the resources to stop the small fires. So there are many small fires which actually are part of the ecology of the environment sustainability of the process. We know that in this climate, fires are helpful for the vegetation to release the seeds and so on, right? You, you know that you have this type of space. So this is an example, sorry to be a bit long, about this illusion of control, which I can see also uh, in economy, in the behavior of central banks. The central banks have this illusion of control. They think they can control completely the stock market and the economy. And now the stock market and the economy are essentially under you know, blood <laughs> uh, fed by, 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 the, by the central banks which gives a complete disruption of the role of financial markets to allocate resources optimally uh, in order for um, catalyzing the source of productivity in the future, right? So this is illusion of control is a very important um, mechanism. Another one is inequality. Another one is inequality. You, can, you take risk if you are relatively comfortable, you have a base or parachute and so on, but for, maybe 70%, 90% of the population we are, who are really struggling on a monthly basis, you don't want to take risk. So it's, it's really stops society to leverage on its human capital. So these are some of the elements I can think of that give rise to the zero risk society. How do we become a more risk tolerant and more risk embracing society? That's a very tough question <laughs> because as you see, uh, this uh, conjunction of forces have drifted a little bit like this uh, tail of the frog, you know, in a heating pan where you know, the condition are slowly, slowly growing and we get habituated by it. And then we are frozen and we are cooked, uh, not realizing the problem. So, you know, for example, our discussion today, I think might be a little contribution part of 
diagnosing the problem you know, and um, make some of your auditors think about this. Say, ah, okay, I want to know more. Maybe I, I could understand and start to have an independent thinking. I am not very optimistic about it. Personally, you know, I try to do everything. I publish, I give interviews like to you. I speak to my students. I, I speak with policymakers and so on. But it's, it's a kind of almost, unfortunately, irreversible trend. The, the sad diagnostic is that only a small fraction of the population will be able to fight these big trends and will be able to profit. That, and this is sad because this is actually increasing inequality. Uh, and also we can see that it will give the advantage to the few nations of the few organizations that are still able and willing to take the risks. So my advice is I am a bit pessimistic about finding a global problem for the whole. Each of us, we have to realize it personally and to act on it personally with our family, with our group, and try to find at least already a solution bottom up. If enough of us do it bottom up, you know, individually, then hope can come back. Didier, thanks a lot for coming on the podcast. Yes, it's a pleasure.